0: To live a creative life, we must lose our fear of being wrong. And that quote is from a, an anonymous source. To live a creative life, we must lose our fear of being wrong. I got to welcome you guys. Welcome you to this February the 20th. I hope you had a fabulous Valentine's Day, which was just last week. You are listening to the Winning Book Radio Show Off the Shelf. Gotta thank our loyal listeners who've been with us for over fifteen years that we've been on the air. And for those of you who you just might have been, oh, what am I gonna do this Saturday morning? And you found off the shelf Talk Radio. Thank you, thank you, thank you for coming over here. We have an awesome guest on deck for you this morning. But before we introduce you to this amazing guest, I just have to ask you guys, do you love mystery and how good of a mystery sleuth are you? Mystery and relationships, and th- in this book, there is a complicated father-son relationship. The father has untreated alcoholism. The son is—he is athletically and academically gifted. He is the kind of man who women say they love, Raymond, and they wish every guy was like him. But he's been bruised as a child. I mean, the, what he came up through in the child abuse in the home he came up in. But he is gifted, and he goes to college, he meets these four friends, and this is a rare, rarity. There are these five guys, they're friends for life. But there's this thing that happens. Not only does Raymond meet his soulmate at college, but his early childhood injuries will they prevent him from opening his heart to her. And also, that something happens when he first gets to college. He witnesses something he has nothing to do with. But you know how relationships, people who come into our lives, impact us? One of his best friends is involved. Is he involved, I'll say? Is he involved, and how is his involvement in this murder that Raymond witnesses his first day at college? If you like mystery and you value relationships and you like to see how our relationships, how we influence, and we almost are like sculptors for each other, we change each other, if you value that, I encourage you to get a copy of Love, Pour Over Me right now. It's an ebook and in print format. It's any bookseller. If you don't see it on the uh, bookstore shelves, just ask the clerk for a copy of Love, Pour Over Me by Denise Turney, and they can get you a copy by, because it's carried by the largest book distributors in the world. And now let us go. Let us go. If I had some drums, I'd be beating my drums. And now let us go and meet our very special off-the-shelf guest. And I am excited. I learned something from every single guest who has been on this show. And our special off-the-shelf guest this morning is Michelle Sullivan. Michelle is a TED Talk speaker, and she's a social impact advisor and an author. And she is also the former president of Caterpillar Foundation and director of corporate social innovation, Caterpillar Inc. Even more, Michelle Sullivan is the writer of the book "Looking Up." And I got to write down her website again. She told me before we went live, lookingup.com. But she also has another website. She she earned her MBA from Bradley University. And she was named by Inside Philanthropy as one of the 50 most powerful women in philanthropy. Go, Michelle. And she has also <laughs> served as a, as a U.S. delegate to the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women. She is a go-getter. And she is a member of the one board of directors and chairs the great, Greater Peoria Local Initiatives support corporation advisory board you guys have to check michelle sullivan out and you can check her out online at michellesullivan.com and looking up.com i'm gonna give you both looking up is spelled exactly as it sounds looking up.com which is the name of her book again that's looking and her other website is michellesullivan.com m-i-c-h-e-l-e-s-u-l-l-i-v-a-n so these two places to find her LookingUp.com, MichelleSullivan.com. We are honored to have Michelle Sullivan join us on Off The Shelf Talk Radio. Welcome, welcome, welcome Off The Shelf, Michelle.
1: Thank you. It's nice to be here, and congratulations on 15 years. That's amazing.
0: Oh, well, thank you, and congratulations on all that you've done and your TED Talk. And you got to really be a a strong public speaker and and have something powerful to share to get on Ted Talk. So kudos to you for that. (laughs) So just to let you know, the first few questions I ask, I asked every guest who comes on the show Uh, just to give our listeners a little backstory. And I tell people when I first started, I just went right into the questions and listeners started emailing me saying, we want to know about the guests before you start asking them questions about their books. So, the first two questions I ask every guest. So to kick it off, Michelle, can you tell off the shelf listeners where you grew up and what life was like for you growing up?
1: Sure. I grew up in Peoria, Illinois, which is right in the middle of the state. And it's about a two and a half hour drive south of Chicago. And it's a bit of a rural area. And, uh, My dad worked at Caterpillar and retired from there. I retired from Caterpillar. My sister still works there. And uh, I grew up, um, you know, in the typical middle-class family. And I was also born with a rare type of dwarfism. So I stand four feet tall. And my parents always told me that, you know, you can still do whatever you want to do. You may do it in a little different way, but you know, size, you know, will not limit you. So uh, I learned early on that education was key, especially for, you know, someone like me that I knew I couldn't, you know, do a real physical job. So early on, I I learned that, you know, uh, I was going to need a, a good education to support myself. And uh, I was able to get that. And, you know, as I've traveled the world, I learned very quickly, you know, how lucky I was to, be born in the country. I was born into the U.S. and to the family who, you know, supports me in in every way. And so I feel very blessed.
0: Do you have siblings or were you an only child?
1: I'm a middle child.
0: Oh, okay. You're in the middle. You're in the middle. (laughs) And and did you grow up on like a farm? You said a rural area. When I hear rural, I think farm. Did you grow up like on a farm? I've heard people grow up on a farm.
1: (laughs) Mm-hmm. It was not a, uh, on a farm, but we are surrounded. You know, central Illinois, you know, has a lot of uh, farms, corn, beans, et cetera. So, for instance, the house that I'm living in now uh, sits on a two, the two acres my house sits on used to be uh, alfalfa field.
0: So we're ah.
1: surrounded by we're surrounded by farms, but but oh. I do not live on the farm. Okay.
0: Now, when you were a little girl, Michelle, and this is one that's always interesting when I ask guests this, is what they will answer. When you were a little girl, what did you dream of becoming when you grew up? When you were a kid, what did you say, this is what I want to be when I grow up?
1: You know, I always thought I'd be a judge. Oh. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: Okay. Interesting. You know, and some people, when I asked that question, some actually became what they wanted to be when they were a kid, and some are nowhere close (laughs) to what they said
1: (laughs) they wanted to be
0: when when, when they were a child. Now, your love for books and writing and looking up the, the book that we were going to explore in today's show, where did that love for books and writing, where did that come from? Did somebody in your family or teacher encourage that in you?
1: Right. You know, coincidentally, I am not a big reader. Now, the rest of my family, they all read. And uh, all my life, people have told me, Michelle, you need to write a book about your life. And I I think everybody has a story. I really do. And I didn't think mine was really that much different than anyone else's. And as I got within a couple years of retirement, I knew that I wanted to, to... carry on with the social impact work and also do speaking, uh motivational speaking and inspirational speaking. And through my the final seven years of my time at Caterpillar being in the foundation and working uh with those in extreme poverty around the world, I have been so inspired and look up to so many people I've met who, you know, have the toughest challenges that you can imagine. And they're very happy and blessed people, they feel. And, and I wanted to write about them and other people who I've looked up to my whole life and who looked up to me, which helped me be successful in my career and in life. And so while the book, Looking Up, is about me looking up to everybody physically, literally being four feet tall, it's more about looking up to everyone Because we all have value, and we all need to take the time to see each other's value and be respectful of that. And Mm. I think we need that in today's world more than ever. So the book, while there are stories about me, it's stories about other people who will absolutely, you know, get into your heart and your mind and think, you know what, that's a beautiful person. Mm. And so that's when I decided to, you know, write the book at that time.
0: You know and I think that is so key in our last guest we had on uh he was the author of the book Fix Your Life. So Fix Your Life or Fix 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 Yourself and he he mm-hmm. kept saying the importance when you said the importance today of us seeing the value in each other. He said the importance yes. of us sl- slowing down. He said because the yep. brain needs you have to slow down, break routines, get your brain off autopilot. So you can make better decisions, and our world is at warp speed right now. But before we get, start really digging into looking up, I wanted to ask you about your work at Caterpillar. That is, of course, a huge, huge company. I mean, I just hearing the mm-hmm. name; I didn't even need to research on it. It's so widely well known. Now, back when you first started working at Caterpillar, uh, different things with diversity and inclusion. Today, when you started mm-hmm. working at Caterpillar, and this is over thirty years ago were there a mm-hmm. lot of women were there a lot of women in leadership positions when you first started working at the company
1: No not at all and even today you know we're caterpillars in manufacturing and, and earth moving and oil and gas and mining and other categories and it is I would say it's still not uh the amount of women that it should be but they're definitely working on it and moving towards that, which, you know, is really the goal. Because if you're working towards something, you are going to reach your goal. And so, but at the time I came in, there was not a lot of women.
0: Mm. Now I want to ask you, so this is another question. So there weren't a lot of women when you came in. And we know a lot mm-hmm. of what we do, and I don't know if you capture this when we start talking about your book, Looking Up, Um a lot of what we do in the goals, you said if you have a goal, then you, you'll you get there. A lot of us don't have big goals, and this is why some people go into even making really poor life decisions, whether it's a relationship, mm-hmm. poor decisions, or they start, how am I going to bring money in, and they do things that are illegal and they find themselves in. Because some of us just don't see enough value in ourselves that we can do some of even a a little of what you have done. So I wanted to ask you, what inspired you? Where did you get that inspiration? Some people are just, (laughs) I'll just work at the entry-level position. Where did you get Mm -hmm. the inspiration to actually seek out senior roles at Caterpillar? Where did that come from in you?
1: You know, it's interesting. When I started at Cat, well, when I graduated from college with my bachelor's, I felt, uh, being a little person, being a woman, and I use crutches, so you know I'm obviously would be categorized as as handicapped as well. So I I went on and got my master's degree right out of my bachelor's degree. So I was 23, and I had a master's degree, and I had a co-op job at IBM. And so I felt like I needed all that to be even on a level playing field with everybody else. And so when I got on a cad, I started in IT, which was not my major. My my major and my master's is in business, but I was placed into the marketing systems, which was great because, you know, marketing is the business side of the company, and then you brought together the IT part. And so I never, so I interviewed for my first job there, and I got it. And I never really thought about moving up. I just really put my head down and, and did my job well, etc. And about three years in I got called into my manager's office. You know, that's like going into the principal's office, right? And she goes, Michelle, uh, you've been doing a great job and I said, Thank you And she goes, We're gonna pip you And I went I thought to myself, Oh no, I got pipped. I didn't even know what pip was And I said, Oh, okay. And she goes, Michelle, do you know what PIP is? I said, no, I have no idea. She goes, it's promotion in place. I went, really? I never even thought or talked about a promotion. It never entered my mind. And nowadays when you hire young people, they think they ought to start like in middle management, a lot of them. And you haven't even done anything yet. Back then, I just kept doing my job. And it's interesting because I never interviewed for another job until it was my last job, which was the foundation. Wow. Everything, Everything in between was based on my work, and I always brought value to my customers. And most of my customers were internal or the dealers. And so I always sought after, what is it you need to do your job better to serve our end customers? And I always grew every job I had. When I left a job, it was totally different than when I started. And then my work got noticed. And then I'd get moved to the next job because somebody wanted me. And I took a lot of laterals. I didn't move up every time. I believe that you have to get a breath and a width, a width of, of experience as well. And so I took uh, laterals sometimes. And that gave me more experience in different areas. So it's interesting, I never sought after it, um, it just happened that I would move up. And it's wow. all because I just put my head down and do my job, I did my job, that's how it happened.
0: And you didn't shy away from it, again. And, I didn't you, shy
1: away from it, no, I it, love a cause challenge.
0: Some, yeah, because some, some of us will shy, we'll think, oh no, I'll fail, I can't do that, and we'll like, no, thank you, but no, I'll stay where I'm at. And so it's, I just think that's so amazing when a person sees enough value in her or himself and has enough courage to say, you know what, I don't even know how it's going to turn out, but I'll go for it. Now, at your website you share that you strongly believe monumental and sustainable change in our largest global challenges can only happen through partnerships and collaboration between public, private, and non-profit, profit entities. And I've heard other business leaders say things like this, why do you think real change calls for this tri partnership, not just mm-hmm. one part, but all working together?
1: I call that the three-legged stool. So if you think about some of our biggest challenges, you can't just have organizations that are working on the ground, you know, feed the, you know, 800 million people who are living on less than $2 a day. And yet you can't depend on the governments either. And the people who can really scale a solution is the private sector. And so if you notice, I'll give you an example. With the vaccine today, that's a global challenge we have in front of us. And the governments can't do it alone. We're now bringing in the private sector, the Walgreens, the Walmarts, the CVSs, because Mm -hmm. they know how to scale solutions. And so the same thing if you're working on poverty. So one of the changes I made when I came to the Caterpillar Foundation was I wanted to not just work at the grassroots level, which is the organizations on the ground, which do the actual work, but I wanted to work on the grass tops, which is advocacy. So when you think about in some countries, girls at the age of 10 can be married off. Now, that should not happen. I think yeah. most people would agree that a 10-year-old should not be married because it gives her a life of poverty and, and bad health. Just, there's nothing good about it. But an organization on the ground can't solve that by themselves. But if we can work and advocate so that laws are passed and legislation are passed at the government level, Granted, it will take time to change the culture. But once you have it at a legislative level at the grass tops, it will start to trickle down. And also the private sector being involved in you know, hiring women and, you know, and making sure that they're educated, you know, through the, and make it, the government making sure that everybody's educated. If you think about it, that's really how you break the cycle of poverty. But you need the grass tops and the grassroots, and then you need the private sector to hire the women as well. So you need all three sectors to really bring sustainable change because one piece of that can't do that by themselves.
0: You know what, and that is one good thing I I am seeing come out of this this COVID and the social unrest I, actually, it seemed like with COVID, with with the sports and corporations sending their employees home last mm-hmm. March, they took the lead.
1: Yep.
0: They took the they lead did. on it. And then the government called, started catching up to the – but it's, it's the private sector took the lead on responding to COVID. That's what I saw anyway. Now, I want to ask you – I agree with that. My, how how did you land the ted woman 2016 talk opportunity you, you we we talked about how the caterpillar these opportunities came up mm-hmm. and you didn't shy away from them. Right. You, you stepped mm-hmm. into the role and changed it. how did you land this this ted
1: woman 2016 talk opportunity yeah. you know that's interesting cuz it's really hard to to land a ted talk you know they they're very good at picking you know great subjects for people to talk on and everything and uh, i never uh, Envision myself giving a TED Talk, albeit I do a lot of public speaking and listen to TED Talks. It was during UN Week the year before, which is when the United Nations comes together and all the social impact folks like myself from the CAP Foundation and not-for-profits and that go to New York because we're all in one place and, and, and do our business for the week. And I was... Uh, it was the year the Pope came to New York and I happened to be at Madison square garden when the Pope was speaking. And then I left there and I was to jump over to, um, a hotel. I think it was the four seasons. And I was going to get up on stage and talk with the assistant, um, Someone with the Secretary of State's office. I was going to speak with, you know, something, a topic uh, to an audience, and so I got over there and I did my talk. And when I got off, a lady approached me and she was with TED, and she's heard me speak before, and she asked if I would be interested in doing a TED talk. Wow. And I said, I said, well, I, I. Well, sure, you know what what would what, what would I speak on, and she goes, "Oh, we'll figure that out, but we, i you know she just enjoyed whenever she's heard me speak, and so she gave me the opportunity then to speak and so I worked on a talk with the ted folks, and uh it turned out to be um you know you never you basically you can't walk in someone else's shoes, but we certainly can walk." Side by side and support each other Because you never know You never know what somebody's going through In a day And we need to you know be open To that you know I get judged A lot being four feet tall And you really don't know anything About me you wouldn't know my bio Or the kind of person I am or anything like that just by Looking at me and so my TED talk is all about that you know we Really need to be more open and Asking for Help is a Strength, Not a Weakness.
0: Wow. So you had done public speaking. And that's the title. That's
1: the title of the ah. talk. Asking for Help is a Strength, Not a Weakness. And it's a chapter in the book as well.
0: Now, you you had been doing public speaking uh, for, for years. So were you in front of a, yeah. and after this we're going to start talking about looking up, but were you in front of a large Audience was there, like, mm-hmm. hundreds of people looking at you? what So you had done that before, so you weren't nervous or anything like that? You were just ready
1: yeah. to go? <laughs> you know, I've been talking publicly since I was a teenager. The largest audience I've spoken to uh, was a couple times at the, through my work at the Foundation, the Global Citizen Festival is in New York, and it's during UN Week, and it's a live uh, show where uh, private sector citizens and countries come together and really work on and speak about, you know, giving support to those living in poverty. So I would be up on stage, and it's, it's live across the world. But in, in the Central Park, the audience was 60,000 people each time. Wow. And then it was live on TV. But, you know, when you start talking about something that you're very passionate about, I don't think about how many people are in front of me. I think about how can I really get them to see, you know, that how they can help these other folks. And I mm. want them to be as passionate and helping in whatever way you can. Then that means I did my job that day.
0: Ah, uh, Oh, well, thank you for what you do. And that kicks us off into... Digging into Looking Up, can you give off-the-shelf listeners an overview of Looking Up? What is some of the content that you cover
1: in the book, Looking Up? Sure. So while I look up to everybody figuratively, or literally, I also look up to everybody figuratively, where I see value in everyone. And it's really hard in today's world when we're judged very quickly by what you see. And the book is about we're all more than that. And I talk about people I've met around the world and what they've meant to me and how I look up to them and how I grew up with people looking up to me and telling me how I could be successful and also how I look up to them. And you'd be amazed at, you know, when you really get to know someone how much you gain from them and it's a wonderful thing
0: ah uh, you know and i can tell you as a, as a host of off the shelf i gain i learn from every Every guest, mm-hmm. and I've had guests from all types of backgrounds, all mm-hmm. over the world. And aren't you a different stuff.
1: person? Aren't you a different person now because of that? Oh
0: my goodness! It's like everybody, yeah. uh, uh, everybody. And, and when you really, I'm not just talking to people surface level, but when you really listen to people and you think well, they may have something to tell me, you do learn something from everybody. And maybe that's a sign mm-hmm. if, for myself if I'm not really paying attention. To somebody that I didn't learn yeah. nothing because I really wasn't listening. If you really listen to people, you can learn something from everybody.
1: Now right. I wanted to ask you. Right. You
0: said you have dwarfism, and and I, where I work, mm-hmm. they had a, like a video that t- the, on the version and inclusion, not not only on your nationality or your race or sexual orientation or or, mm-hmm. or different learning disabilities or mental health mm-hmm. issues. But there was a lady who, on a video. I think she did a TED Talk, and she had uh, dwarfism, and she said how hard it was to just use a public bathroom or uh, you can't reach reach anything. And she said the, the, the toilets that were... Redesign and her her focus was on design. She said the the toilets that were redesigned for people who were in wheelchairs made it harder for people who had the So you have one segment. So, how do you, you know, so I don't know if there's a one fit you can work it all out, but to really be more. Yeah. And the thing that shocked me when she did her video was she said people actually tease her like daily. And I'm like, are you serious? Are you serious <laughs> in 2021? I, I just couldn't believe that. It just was so. I, I couldn't believe it. And, uh, and then some people are helpful and kind, and they treat you like an adult, not like you're a, a seven-year-old. But I wanted to ask you. She said she grew up in a very supportive family, and that's why she was able to make her manage her way through life. Do you, do your do any of your parents have dwarfism? And I'm asking because that would give you. I would. I'm. Su- I'm just imagining a mirror to say my mom did it and my or my dad did it, I know I can do it. And if they mm. don't, where did you you think you got this confidence? Who modeled this confidence for you that you obviously have?
1: Uh my all my family is average size. Uh most little people are born to family to parents who are average size. It's it's just a genetic um you know, thing that happens once every maybe twenty thousand births or so. So it's not very common. And so, uh, my family's all average size. And, you know, my parents gave us, you know, the confidence to do whatever it is we want to do. Um, but they especially I think, you know, make sure that I knew that I could do what I needed to do. And uh they were there to support me. They let me fail when I needed to fail and and they were certainly there, you know, when I did well. And um, but they also got me into an organization called Little People of America, and that's obviously for you know little people. Uh, and most of us are under four feet ten. And that really, I got into that when I was twelve, and I have lifelong friends to this day. And you know that really helped because you know you're talking to people literally eye to eye. And also they stress education. It's it's a great place to be because you're talking to people who know exactly what you're talking about or going through. And also, you know, the medical field is there because a lot of people don't know, uh, have the experience to treat, you know, maybe the uh, orthopedic issues that a lot of little people have. And so it's an all-around organization. And, and they advocate for us as well with the government. And, you know, that's another way to advocate is, you know, something that you have experience in. And so I was very involved in LPA and still am today in terms of, you know, my friendships are are vast across the country and uh, even across the world because other countries have uh, organizations for little people. And as I've traveled, I'm like in Australia, I would go and, and meet with the, that group as well. So it's been very successful for me. Um, and that um, is really a big piece of being a um, little person and accepting it is, you know, ninety nine point nine percent of the time I live in the average size world, but when I get that point one percent of the time, it's always nice because you know I'm not different at that point. <clears throat>
0: <clears throat> yes, yes, and you and and I'm 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 listening to you and as our listeners, if they came in midstream once the show finishes. Streaming, you can go back and listen to it. It's an entirety in the archives and share share the show as well. But just listening to you talk, you can hear there's, there is that, and I, I said this before, and and maybe it's something you touch on in your book, Looking Up, everybody doesn't have that in, internal confidence. That is such a
1: right. I I mean, that's
0: such a gift. That lack of confidence can literally keep you stuck in bad situations uh, where some people Absolutely. might be. Absolutely. Uh, constantly abused, something going on, they won't leave because they don't think they're worth anything better. And so I'm hearing you, you, you that internal confidence is uh, uh, it's such a a gift, and you can see where it will take you. It, it, you can see where it just, it, that is such a gift. I want to ask you next, you mentioned this uh, uh, briefly earlier in the interview, about how we just make these quick judgments. We're not supposed to judge at all, but we make these quick judgments. <laughs> mm-hmm. Why do our brains, Michelle? Why do our brains immediately make assumptions? And is there how can we stop doing this?
1: You know, it's funny we all do it though, don't we? We we all do it, and I even write about it in the book. You know, some of the science behind it from another piece of literature I read. And when you think about it, when even from when we're young, it's it's the only thing we have to go by. And it's the only thing, you know, if we're in a hurry, which we always are, we we don't want to take the time to think differently. We all have unconscious biases, including me. And I catch myself doing it. And I don't like it when people do it to me, and yet I do it. And we really have to work on that. And so the other piece of this is you talked about confidence. You know, we're taught to be independent from a very young age. And in my book I write about to be the most successful, though, you should lead an interdependent life mm. because we're not going to be successful at everything we do. If you think about something that you, you did really well, did you do that all by yourself?
0: Yeah, it's a good probably, point.
1: Probably not. And think about all the people who helped you get to where you are. And I write about that in the book that I think the most successful life we lead is an interdependent life. And to your point, I'm not always confident, but I'm surrounded by people who I know will help me get to where I need to be. And it may not be successful at first, but I keep moving forward. And at the end of the day, that's that's the most important piece is just keep moving forward. You don't have to meet a goal entirely. As a matter of fact, you may not meet your goal, but you sure learned a lot along the way. And the more interdependent life you lead, I talk about the kitchen table. You know when something really bad happens or you get a bad diagnosis or something really good happens, like when I got the call about the Cat Foundation job, I, you have this group of people, really small, I call it my kitchen table, that you call first and you talk to them until you get your head around whatever it is you're dealing with. And it's important that you keep that kitchen table close to you. Mm-hmm. And you may have several kitchen tables, and your kitchen table changes as you go through life. You know how there's some people you can call, you haven't talked to them in 10 years? Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you mm-hmm. left off, right? So in, in my book I write about, it's also important that we're part of someone else's kitchen table. To your point, people need, to, people need a shoulder to lean on or they need a hand on their shoulder to be confident and to help you move along. And remember that you don't have to lead an independent life, but lead an interdependent life and be a part of other people's life because that's what's important. Remember your kitchen table. Don't forget about your kitchen table. You always have people that you can lean on.
0: good- mm, You know, good points because experiences in this world will will certainly leave you at times. If you if you explore enough,
1: you will be right. in situations
0: and where you, you to be will open, definitely right? need somebody else. <laughs> and you have, you have to let, you have
1: to let your guard down, and that's really hard because to let your guard down, you're really showing your vulnerability, aren't you? Mhm. Yeah. Yep. yep. So sometimes you have to make the first move. I know in the first ten or fifteen seconds, if somebody's going to accept me for who I am, and you look past my size, and sometimes I can tell that person has no interest in that, and I just move along. But you always still make the first move. I my parents say I came out talking. I had the gift out, <laughs> and I <laughs> and I use I use humor. I use humor to go up and talk to people and break the ice. And you really have to lean into life. If you sit mm-hmm. back and lean on the wall, you're gonna miss out on a lot. You really yeah. are. Yeah. No, but yet it's, you open yourself up by approaching somebody, right? It could go really wrong. But you know what? Most of the time it doesn't. Mhm.
0: Mhm. That's true. Now how can we shift how can we shift from surviving uh, I, 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 the last guy who was on the show, he was a psychotherapist. He said a lot of people who are he's being in therapy in his private practice, they're not coming in to get tips on how to thrive. They just want to know how to survive. How yeah. can we shift from how can we shift from surviving to thriving, even in this like this totally new COVID world? Someone yeah. just told me the other day they felt like this is a, like a bad dream.
1: <laughs> well, it I mean, is, I mean, isn't I mean, it? I mean, how we're going on a year. Yeah. Yes. And you know what? I have leaned. I have leaned on my kitchen table. I but I also have tried hard to get into new things and also, um, you know, stay busy and find things that I really enjoy. And also, to be honest, I there's a thing called strength finders, and there's 34 strengths, and you look at your top five. My top one is positivity. Mm. And so I see a lot of positive things coming out of this last year. We have spent more time with our families than ever before that we would have never happened. It would have never happened. And you talked at the start of the show, you know, we're forced into slowing down. You said your guest said we really need to slow down. You know what? We were thrust into that. And yeah. there's a lot of innovation. Look at the innovation. We have leapfrogged 15 years ahead in innovation. And then I see neighbors checking on other neighbors to make sure they're okay or or go into the grocery store maybe for the elderly so that they're not vulnerable to the virus. So for me, I've seen a lot of positive things come out of this. And that's how I look at life. I really try to find the good out of everything. Albeit, this is a challenge for me. I'm a very social person, so I got to tell you, this is driving me nuts. But I get to do a lot more podcasts like and talk to people that I probably wouldn't have gotten to do otherwise. I would have to. I would have spent much more time on an airplane, which is not productive. And I'm spending more time talking to folks like you. And your listeners. So I think that's a positive. But you do, you have to go in deep and really work and pull yourself through every day. And some people have to pull a lot harder than others. But again, you're not in this alone. And one of the chapters of my book is make the first move. And you have to sometimes reach out and ask for help. Because we can't read your mind, and we don't always know that you're in trouble. But also, don't wait for someone to ask you for help. Don't be afraid to say, you know, so-and-so, I I see that you might be having a little bit of struggle. Is there something that I could do for you, or would you like to talk about it? Mm, yeah, It yes, works yes. both ways. It works both ways, and that's the You know, your kitchen table works both ways. Your interdependence works both ways. If you think about it, you're surrounded. You just have to sometimes look and ask people, you know, if you need something and ask people, can you help them?
0: Mm -hmm. And can you tell us about the two types of growth? Uh, What are the two types of Mm -hmm. growth that you mentioned in looking up?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. We only talk about one in life. You know, you always hear parents hey, my baby, my baby is in the 95th percentile of growth. (laughs) Like that has anything to do with what their success is going to be or anything. But, I mean, people always talk about, oh, my child's in the 90, 95th percentile. Well, I guarantee you I was never in the 90 plus percentile. I probably was in the 50th percentile being a little person. And so I found it funny that, you know, my parents I've sure never said that. Well the show that such and such were sent out. And so your physical growth happens till what, eighteen, maybe twenty, twenty one, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's your outside growth that you can see and, and people who are really tall, people, you know, joking aside, look up to them, Wow, look at that, you know. And if you see a little person, if you say, wow, look at that, it's because you're going, what is that? (laughs) You know, there's a big difference. And yet the rest of your life you spend growing, just like you are. You, You made the comment, every person you have on the show, that you grow internally. And we spend the rest of our life doing that. And that's what my parents told me. You know, I never knew I was little until I went to kindergarten. My parents never, never, you know, told me I said I was different until I went to kindergarten and the kids all asked me why I looked so different, and it just, it just stunned me. I mean, I remember it like it was yesterday. Wow. And my parents kept saying, Michelle, it's, it doesn't matter. You're gonna be, you're gonna learn just like them. You're gonna be fine. And then in first or second grade, we started this math game and they had flashcards. It was called Around the World. And you stood next to someone's desk and whoever said the answer first got to move along. And you'd go on around the classroom or around the world. And you know who the best person was in math? It was me. The best? Yep. And I became known as the girl that was smart. And then I started understanding what my parents were saying. Then when my friends would, you know, introduce me to their parents, it was, this is that girl that that knows everything in math. <laughs> and that was the first time that I I I was identified as something other than what you see. Mm. Isn't that something? And then it yeah, started yeah. to click for me. At wow. That age, it, like first and second grade, and it was tough to understand.
0: And, and you know what? I'm glad you had that experience. You can, again, that, that confidence will... Cause you to take those opportunities that you like, you were offered a caterpillar and, and other places. Mm-hmm. That, if you don't have the confidence and you don't value yourself, you 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 shy away, you'll pull back, you'll say no, nah, mm-hmm. no, nah. you'll come up with a reason why you don't want to mm-hmm. do it. Now I I gotta ask you this: we often hear go with your go with your gut, go with your gut instinct, yes, yeah. go with that first feeling. So in looking up. The book looking up, I got to ask you this: why isn't knowledge at first sight real? We talking
1: go with your, go you with go your with 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 you instinct, yep. go with the first thing because you go with it that's right, and yet you always go with the judgment of what you see most of the time, but I do think people um are those who are open or have had experience maybe with other little people like myself. That's why, to me, diversity and inclusion is more than what you can see. It's not just about what race you are or what sex you are. To me, it's also about experience in life. And when you have a diverse team of people who have, you know, much different experiences in life, maybe they grew up in a homeless shelter. Maybe they grew up in a very wealthy family. Maybe they grew up... uh, parents, uh, you know, their parents were missionaries. All of those people think different, and they have something to bring to the table that you maybe would have never thought of. And I'm a big proponent of that. Mm -hmm. And so if you go, if you really open up to someone and be open to what they're telling you and how they feel and what they've experienced, then you get more of a breath you know, the value that they have and can bring to the table for you and how your experience can dovetail with theirs. I always told my team, that, Kat, if we all agree on everything, then I have the wrong team. Wow. Because that's not good. If we all agree all the time, then something has to change because we aren't thinking out of the, the, you know, out of bounds at all. And I like a good debate.
0: You know, that's, that is interesting because I can tell you, even now the, the work world has definitely changed since I first entered it over 30 years ago. Yes. But people are still afraid to say anything opposite of what a senior leader says. I actually know somebody at it a college
1: is it is who got hard. fired. a uh,
0: vice president, the president yep. fired him. He said, don't you ever yep. correct me in public again. But oh, it, yep. it, 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 there's a fear around... If, if and the senior yeah. leader says A, you better not say C. You better not. You better not say it. You better say, "Oh, what a great idea! What, oh, you're on the right path. Oh, that was so wonderful what mm-hmm. you said, senior leader." <laughs> it takes. It, it's odd that you have that approach, but I'm, in yeah. real actual so, life, a lot of senior yeah. leaders, if you say opposite of what they said, you better go look for another job.
1: I 100% agree. Now, keep in mind, I was not at the the C-suite. And you really can't say, no matter what they say, you can't call somebody out in the middle of a big, you know, group meeting. But what you can do, and this is what I talk to people about, is it's also your approach. Can you say something like, can you tell me what your thoughts are on such and such? Instead of saying, why don't you ever think about da-da-da-da-da and instead say, you know, can you tell me your thoughts, senior leader, around da-da-da, and um, is there a way that we maybe can look into that as a business opportunity? Uh, The way you phrase it, the way you package it. Yeah, And, and maybe that's not the place to ask either. There's always a time and place. You can always go through your leader and let him run it up the chain and then you don't risk, you know, getting blackballed or anything because you can't just say certain things in a public environment or at someone. It it doesn't work. But there is a time and a place to do it. You know, I'm not an in-your-face type of person and that's part of our problem with politics, right? Things are not all black and white, and through life, you do start to change your mind on certain subjects. And politicians aren't allowed to do that. Mm,
0: yeah, you know what? This, Twenty years it, ago, you
1: believed in blah blah blah. <laughs>
0: yes, and and you can't, and now you can't. You but you better not change your view. That's very interesting that you would say that, and that you see that play out over and over again. Now, you do, this, don't you? I opened with this quote. At the start of the show, not even remembering that I was going to ask you this question, but the quote attributed Anonymous, to live a creative life, we must lose our fear of being wrong. So this was a question I had doing the research for your interview, not even recalling that quote. It's been said that we hate to be wrong, and I'm told that that is something that keeps us from thriving. You can either be right or you can be wrong. And sometimes being wrong and knowing you're wrong and going another way is the way to advance. But I'm told as Mm humans, we hate change, and we hate to be wrong. Why is it so hard for us to accept that we may be wrong, even if accepting that is the very key that will help us reach happiness sooner? Well, you know,
1: it's funny. In my book, I talk about being wrong, and... You have to accept that we are not always right. Even those senior leaders that we just talked about. (laughs) They may not admit it, but we are not always right. And if you don't accept that you're not right when you look at me and you judge me by my size, then we really can't move forward. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: You have to accept that when you see somebody in our judgment, our very first thoughts, are often wrong. And in the book I I explicitly say we have to accept that most of the time we're wrong. So why don't you approach someone and get to know them so that you really do know who they are. Yeah, but and it's not you and, said, and it's
0: no there's no loss. There's no loss. It's
1: not like you're gonna lose anything There is no loss. What what did you what yeah, what did you lose? The other thing is um, you know, you can't just Wait for people to come to you either. Because some people are very shy. Or maybe something's happened where somebody jumped down their throat one time. Although I'm not going to approach somebody again, right? Once you get stung, you kind of back away. And that's a shame. But I will say that we are hypersensitive about being offended. Like someone may call me a midget, which is a derogatory word. I'm not going to jump down somebody's throat. I'll just say, you know, um, I'm Michelle first, and I just happen to be a little person, and, and you know, but I'd like you to call me Michelle. But I will tell you that I even am a little nervous today knowing what to say in offending somebody because they make it so public now in so many ways against you that we now are starting to retreat from, you know, talking to people. Because if you offend somebody, they make a big scene about it. And most people, if they say the wrong term or say something bad, it's out of ignorance. It's not out of trying to be mean or anything. And to me, teaching at that moment is a a bigger impact than, you know, jumping on their throat so that they're never saying anything to the next person again. So the bigger teaching moment is to be calm and not judgmental and just to include the person in the discussion. So I always try to take the high road.
0: There you go, yeah. And then each and we do, we're all teachers and students all through this, this physical mm-hmm. experience now. Mm-hmm. Is looking up uh, we have about eight minutes left in the show. Is looking up is it is it autobiographical, and if not, how is the book written for our listeners?
1: It is it, part of it is yes it is, uh, but also I talk a lot about other people, and so it is a. It, you will certainly understand, you know, where I've come from, who who I am, and how I got this way. But you will see all the people in my kitchen table and in my village who helped me get here, and hopefully who I helped, and then also the work through the foundation and how you can make an impact on the world as well.
0: Mm. Now how easy, especially with the autobiographical pieces, some people when they go back and mm-hmm. write something and they have to revisit old
1: mm-hmm. prior yeah.
0: experiences, They uh, raw emotions can come up. How easy or difficult was it to actually write and put together the book Looking Up?
1: Oh, there were parts that I certainly struggled with um, emotionally. You know, things that you tuck away your whole life. And I worked with a writer, and there were parts where I had to write down the story and mail it to him, email it to him. And then he would help me, you know, word it, you know, in the appropriate way. But I couldn't talk to him on the phone about it because I couldn't get Mm -hmm. to him. Yeah, I, I call it my counseling session. This book was a year-long counseling session.
0: <laughs> wow. Yep. Yeah. But
1: there's also parts that were funny. You know, people tell me they laugh out loud. So I like that. I, mm-hmm. I like that they felt it was real.
0: And I was going to ask you next, what have readers, what is what are, what some of the feedback you've been getting from readers about looking up?
1: That it was very positive that it helped them, you know, with a lot of their thought processes with other people and how they uh, should look at people differently and not be so judgmental. And also about how you can make a social impact on the world today. And that at the end of the day, I believe we're supposed to leave this world better than when we got here. And they find that very uplifting. They find it humorous. Uh, they cry, they laugh, and they leave knowing that uh, they can make a difference in the world as well.
0: And it's gotten all chance. five
1: stars on Amazon. It's gotten all five stars on Amazon, and the comments have been good, very good. Awesome, and awesome. I appreciate that.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. As a as a writer, I can truly understand stand that. Uh, now, what, for our listeners who themselves might be thinking about writing a book, but for some reason or another, they keep putting it off. Mm-hmm. Michelle, can what type of process do you follow with, with five minutes left? What type of pro- process did you follow when you were writing, looking up? Did you do outlines? Did you do a lot of mm-hmm. research first? How did you compile and p- pull the book together?
1: Yep. I did, I did an outline, and I knew the high-level part of the book, but I will tell you that as you write the book, it does change, and you have to allow yourself that, to change. Just because you had an outline and some ideas, it doesn't mean that it's not going to change as you write it. And it's supposed to do that. And then I had a writer that helped me quite a bit who has written many books. And he would, you know, help me with, you know, I knew the point of the chapter. And then I put stories around the point that I wanted people to take away. And then he helped me tie those two things together. So... He was part of my kitchen table. I talked to him more that year than everybody else put together. We spent a lot of time together to get it just right so that people could envision themselves in that situation and take something away from it, you know, that they could use. But -hmm. there's a lesson in each chapter. There's something for you to take away. Also, if you're a person of faith, which I am, there is a thread of faith throughout the book, and you'll notice that if you're a person of faith,
0: okay, as
1: well. Be, mm-hmm. Can you
0: share three to four steps that you have taken, Michelle, that you've been you found to be effective at getting the word out about looking up as you're marketing and promoting the book?
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. well, you know, certainly. You know, the first step is acknowledging that we're not perfect, are we? <laughs> And that the world is full of challenges and it will be throughout your whole life. But there are some beautiful times and hopefully you have more beautiful times than bad times. But either way, the second piece is you're not alone. And the third piece is you have to acknowledge that. And also acknowledge that you can help other people. And when you bring that together, the fourth piece is don't ever give up. You may not, it may not go exactly as you had envisioned, but sometimes it works out better. And I believe in fate whatever's meant to be will be. And give it time, and you will probably figure out that that was the best thing that happened to you, even though it maybe didn't go according to plan. And that there's people there that are supporting you the whole way. But you have to be vulnerable and let your guard down to accept that help and support. Mm-hmm. And I find and, that's where people have the biggest stumbling block is I, I have to do this by myself. And you don't do anything in life by yourself, you don't.
0: You know what? I, I can so so agree with that because you find out you bit off more than you can chew. I don't care what you take on if you try to. That's right. To dig that's yourself. right. Are are we can Are you working on any new books? And where can uh, off the shelf listeners find you on social media?
1: Yeah, so it's uh, my social media is follow Michelle L, and Michelle is with one L. So follow the word follow, M I C H E L E, and then the letter L. Follow Michelle L, and up dot com is where you can find a lot about me, and you can see my talks, and I have some blogs out there, and and uh, you can find the book at up dot com on Amazon at Target. You know, it's pretty widely available. Okay, we have we have
0: come to the end of this episode of of Off the Shelf Book Talk Radio, and we are so happy we have Michelle Sullivan. She's the writer of the book Looking Up, which we did explore on today's show. And Michelle is, is she's she's done a, a TED Talk, and she's been on a book book TV, and just honored to have her. And again, you can find her at her website lookingup.com. It's spelled just the way it sounds. And she's on social media, it's, and her other website is michellesullivan.com, dot com. M I C H E L E S U L L I V A N. dot com, or just go over to look, lookingup.com. dot com. We thank you, Michelle Sullivan, again, the author of the book Looking Up. dot com, and five star reviews at Amazon. Encourage you to support Michelle and check her out not only at lookingup.com, you can bookmark her website to keep up with what she's doing, but get a copy of the actual book by Michelle Sullivan, Looking Up, Looking Up, Looking Up, lookingup.com. Thank you so much, Michelle. We, uh, we thank you for your thank time you. and, and your transparency and what you, you shared from working in big corporations and the, the, the three legged <laughs> private, public, and uh, yep. the, how we all have to work together. And it's, it's okay to ask for help, and it's also good yeah. to help others as well. So we yeah. want to thank Michelle. As I always tell our listeners, thank you, thank you, thank you for being here with us this Saturday. Come back next Saturday, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We will have another phenomenal guest for you. And remember, you are awesome. You are amazing. You are fabulous. Go out and create a credible day for yourself today. See you back here next Saturday. Thank you, Michelle. I'll shoot you an email. Bye for now.